0: Hello and thank you for joining us on Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond and today I'm talking to the extremely prolific writer, Seanan McGuire. Hello Seanan. Hello. (laughs) Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your books.
1: Uh, I'm Seanan McGuire. I'm an American urban fantasy author based out of the Pacific Northwest where it is generally damp and we're happy about that. And um, I went to the University of California Berkeley for a major in folklore. Um, and I tend to write books that make me feel like I didn't waste all of my time at university.
0: (laughs) Now obviously you have an impressive back catalogue, but the series that captured the imagination of both myself and my co-host Megan is the Wayward Children series. Uh, There are two books in this series, and I'd like to talk a little bit about each of them, as well as another novella of yours from Tor.com, then chat a bit about Versus Myra Grant, and a little bit about writing in general. Absolutely. if, If We start with Every Heart a Doorway. Now this book deals with an aspect of portal fantasy that we don't normally see. So a traditional portal fantasy has the protagonist, as the name suggests, going through a portal into another world. One example being the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. However many portal fantasies deal with the protagonist's adventures when they pass through rather than when they come back. What was the catalyst that made you think you'd like to deal with this aspect of portal fantasy rather than the traditional one?
1: so i am also a filk singer which means i belong to the science fiction and fantasy folk music community and i wrote a song several years ago now called wicked girls saving ourselves uh, which was about all of the girls in those classic portal fantasies and how on the whole they get offered these chances at adventure and glory and seeing a bigger, broader world. And the first thing I can think is, I'd better get home in time to do the dishes. <laughs> um, and so the the song is all about giving up and losing that chance. Um, and that was, it was one of my first really successful pieces, uh, Filk is, is not a super lucrative place to live. Uh, but the album that it's on, Wicked Girls, um, it's it's the title song, the album that it's on became the first ever uh, single artist album to be nominated for a Hugo Award in the Best Related Works category. Uh, it's meant a whole lot of things to a whole lot of people. And I love it, but obviously those are other people's portal fantasies. You know, it's Alice and Dorothy and, and characters I don't own. So I wanted to play with that concept more and talk more about how portal fantasy really in a strange way is a comfort fantasy for adults you know if your children are ever offered this magical adventure this opportunity to have everything they've ever wanted they'll come home in time for the dishes um and and so i just sort of sat down and generated my own set of worlds to break people with
0: so the concept once you've got got that was it the plot then that came along, or did the character of Nancy leap out at you first, and then you wanted to build something around her?
1: I knew that I needed something that would let me introduce the world as um, tidily as possible, without it actually being all about. And then this one person gets to go home. Uh, so the idea of doing it as a murder mystery came fairly early in. And then I have a policy um, which came about because a friend of mine pointed out that they never got to see themselves in fiction that when someone I know uh, comes to me and says I never get to see myself in fiction, I will try to move writing a character that is kind of them up the list And uh, Nancy, who is asexual uh, was written for a friend of mine who had that exact complaint the I'm never I'm never the starring character if if I show up at all, which is extremely regu- extremely rarely, uh, it is to be part of a, a message of the week, and it's not fair. And uh, they were right, it's not fair. So they kind of came in tandem in that sense.
0: Oh, I see. So Nancy was started off as asexual, rather kind of growing that way when you were writing and plotting.
1: Yes. I, I knew from the start that she was, but I don't... I know some authors that that really sit down and plot out who their characters will be. Uh, in phenomenal detail, and I'm kind of in awe of them because I don't understand how that works. Uh, I sort of let my subconscious get on with things while I'm not looking because (laughs) it's better at this job than I am. And so most of the time, I meet the characters properly when they show up and go, okay, you said you needed a mad scientist. Well, here I am. Okay, uh, great. Do I get to decide anything about you? No. It's all already encoded. And I know I'm coming up with these characters. I'm just doing it by letting the subconscious character generator do
0: the work for me. So if Nancy is loosely based on a real person, does she have more kind of reality to you on the page than, say, the mad scientist that you just dreamt up? Uh, no, she, she's not
1: based on my friend at all. Um, it was less make me a character and more growing up as an asexual person i never ever got to see myself have that representation Um, and honestly i think that it means more to my friend because of that Uh, because anyone can do a tuckerization i could write you into a book tomorrow and then you could open a book and there's you exactly you but that doesn't say to the class of people to whom you belong if they are a class that is lacking in representation you know hey here i am Uh, I know so many people that cried when we found out who the new doctor was going to be, and I I didn't cry, but there was a lot of clapping my hands and screaming. Uh, (laughs) That doesn't mean that that she's going to be exactly me. I mean, it's still the doctor. I grew up with the doctor. I learned a lot of moral and life lessons from the doctor, so I can make a sort of argument for, well, childhood role model. There are probably aspects of me that are very Gallifreyan at this point, uh, because we do absorb the things we see, but it would actually have meant less if it was and now this character is exactly modeled on Seanan McGuire like what?
0: no <laughs> so that's... did your friend be to read it or read it when it was published and did she have a really kind of like yes that's exactly what I was going for or was she like yeah that's cool That it's not kind of me but it, it's great and I'm pleased it's out there
1: um they got to read it when it was published along with everyone else Um, My beta readers are a fairly closed-in group because I I have to herd them like cats, and they're (laughs) wonderful Um, But I don't I don't usually go looking for more Uh, That would be a nightmare wonderland of unrelenting proportions Um, And they really liked it quite a lot. I mean any kind of sexuality including Heterosexuality which is just not a thing we talk about all that often any kind of sexuality is going to vary from person to person you and I can identify with the exact same labels and yet have completely different human experiences. So Nancy's asexuality is not 100% my friend's asexuality, uh, but it is a genuine experience that they had not been able to see before.
0: I mean, that's great. It's one of the things I really love about sexuality in your books, not just Nancy, but later on as we'll discover, is that it is part of a character but it's not their defining thing it's just something that turns up and it's just so wonderful and I think in a a book where it's why well it's not quite YA but it's tempted to be categorized as such to not have a romantic interest and to have a very definite reason why rather than just oh well you know I I didn't focus on that I think it's absolutely fantastic Um, and Mm. I'm sure plenty of our readers would like it as well but I have to ask you where did the title come from and I'm wondering if you were part of a folk band whether there's maybe a song with this line in it now
1: uh, there is not a song with that line in it yet, but I've met me, so that may happen at some point. <laughs> um, and the, the title is kind of like character generation, unfortunately. I, I poke at things. I come up with a title. Um, it's usually a working title. Sometimes it works out, and other times uh, we have the frantic, well, this has to be turned in in three hours. Has anyone come up with a better title yet? Uh, dance, which is not a fun dance, and I don't recommend coming to it.
0: Uh, we don't enjoy it very much. <laughs> so whereabouts did Every Heart a Doorway come from in the process? Was it right at the beginning? Was it the working title or was it one of the last? It was ones?
1: the working. Well, it was partially the working title.
0: Um, the original working title was Every Heart
1: a Doorway, Every Word of Prayer. Um, and which Because it's I tend toward very long titles when I'm not being uh, super commercial. And uh, that's a James Tiptree thing. Um, And, you know, when we finished it up and and I sent it to my editor for the first time, he looked at it and went, I think that that we would like to have a title that didn't make people think it was a religious book, because it's not. And I also think that you are perhaps underestimating how commercial this may be. And so I would like it to have a title that people can actually say with a straight face. And and these are both fair criticisms, because I've met me ever. I know how I tend to title things. Uh, so we worked together to find something that was a little less awkward.
0: So one thing that strikes me, you were talking about um, children and it, a lot of sort of port fancies being adult wishing. So you say every heart a doorway. Does that mean, do you think, that it could include adults? Because obviously the wayward children focuses mainly on the children. But in your head, in that universe, are there adults who have hearts that are doorways as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, In that universe, there are adults that find doors for the first time as adults. The problem is that as adults, we start having ideas about the way things work. Um, You know, up is always up and down is always down. And I think that a lot of the doors that these children travel to would be very, very bad for adults who went there for the first time. Uh, Not because there's anything wrong with adulthood, but because we're just not as good at contending with, and everything you know about the world is now turned
0: upside down. Fantastic. Well, let's move on to your next novel. So it's not a Wayward Children novel, but it's one that I read and I thought was really fantastic. And I have to apologize in advance, because I I was talking to a friend about it, and I kept calling it Dusk Till Dawn, and it's not. No. It's dusk or dark or dawn or day. So apologies if I slip back into that. That's Um, all right. Now, this isn't strictly in the Wayward Children series, but I felt it had the a same sort of feel to it. And it was certainly the novel you wrote for Tor.com, Between Every Heart and Down Among the Sticks and Bones. So mm-hmm. would you say there are similarities between this novel and your Wayward Children? Um, did you imagine that they may maybe part of the same universe? Or in your mind, are they very distinctly different places?
1: They're, they're very distinctly different places for me. They're absolutely not in the same universe. Um, I think some similarity is unavoidable when you have the same author. Uh, but I really hope it's not too much of a similarity because that would speak poorly to my ability to to switch when necessary um, to, to keep things in the universes they're meant to be in. Uh, Dusk or Dark or Dawn or Day is its own thing. It, it exists in its own weird little cosmology. Uh, and it has a good time there, but it is distinctly odd. Um, it was written... Actually, between Every Heart a Doorway and Dusk or Dark, I wrote at least one full-length novel. So they weren't even written all that closely together.
0: Oh, yes, because you, if you look at your website and all of your bibliography, my goodness, I don't know how you find the time to eat or sleep or, or stroke your cats. There is an awful lot of work on there. So just out of interest, what was the novel you wrote in between them? You know, honestly,
1: I could not tell you. I just know what the... What the uh, <laughs> The delivery schedule was like for those and that means that there has to have been a book in between uh-huh. um, probably next year's encrypted novel um which is called tricks for free uh that seems like it lines up the best but i would i would have to go back through my files and figure out exactly what i had been doing in that same time period um so yeah it is it is definitely its own thing continuity wise uh, and that's nice because when you're working in a one and done continuity, you don't have to worry as much about making everything sustainable over multiple books. Mm. You know, you don't have to spend time setting up Easter eggs and establishing things that you may or may not ever actually get around to doing anything with. Uh, there's mention in Every Heart a Doorway, for example, that there's a sister school in Maine. I don't know if we're ever actually going to go to the sister school. But if I didn't establish right off the bat that the sister school was there,
0: I would have real trouble going there if I wanted to. Well, that's interesting. So I was having a conversation with a writer friend um, a couple of months back or several writer friends asking when you set out to write a series of books, how much do you know about how the series is going to end? Because I know J.K. Rowling said she always had the final line of Harry Potter in her head and where it was going to go. But when you start writing, do you kind of go, right, well, I definitely know which way wayward children I'm going to look at, or is it just a case of I'll throw in a few bits here, I've got some vague ideas, so I'll put a reference to it?
1: Uh, it's kind of both. I mean, I actually feel, and I say this as someone with a great deal of love for Harry Potter, that J.K. Rowling did her world a disservice by always knowing exactly how it was going to end. Uh, because it meant that when the characters grew and changed, And that will always happen if you're writing something good. And and again, I'm not saying they have a life of their own. I'm just saying you will grow and improve as a writer over the process of writing it. You will find that aspects of the story that were not necessarily super enthralling to you at the beginning become more enthralling. You're going to set out to tell a story, but at the end you will have told parts you didn't know were there. Because she didn't let her characters do that, that epilogue rings very false to me. Um, and to a a lot of people I know and it's not oh I didn't get what I wanted I I was never going to get exactly what I wanted out of Harry Potter none of us were because it was such a big story with such a lot of of stakes in it Um, but by refusing to let go of that epilogue I feel like she kind of undercut a great deal of her own character development and her own growth as a writer
0: um I imagine that's not something you're going to have a problem with in the Wayward Children series, because so far each of them has kind of focused on an individual. So you're not following the same person all the way through. It's focused on different people. Is that the way you're going to keep going with Wayward Children, do you think?
1: The uh, The plan right now is that we're going to continue alternating. Come here, baby. Come here. Okay. Good girl. We're going to continue alternating, so it'll be one book set at the school and then one book that is... Uh, how the characters went to their specific world and what happened there. Um, And some of those are going to wind up crossing over as things go on.
0: Uh, That sounds really fantastic. But I find I'm drifting away again from um, Dusk or Dark dark or Dawn or Day. And that was a fantastic book. And like you said, it's its own weird little world. And I kind of feel that there's a really good setup there for other novels. Do you think you might be tempted to go back to it? Or is this definitely one and no more?
1: I am always tempted to go back to everything. (laughs) Uh, My girlfriend likes to joke that if you really need something to read, leave me alone for 15 minutes. Uh, (laughs) Come back, I'll have started a new series. So I would happily spend the rest of my life revisiting things I've already done. Right now, there is not a story there. And there is not a huge clamor for a story there. You know, people have liked it, but it's... The wayward children, you know, as you as you mentioned, even in this interviewing, you keep drifting back to it. Um, that's what's really captured folks right now, and so that's what people are asking for more of. Um, and you know, not to uh, not to sound crass, but just a moment ago, I wasn't calling you as the interviewer, baby. I was talking to my cat, who had come over to see what I was doing. I'm holding her now, and she's just started chemotherapy today. So, I really like it when I write books that people want to buy and read and enjoy, both because I like making people happy and because I really like
0: paying my vet bills. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, I, I was going to add a little note later on that it wasn't me you were talking to. More's a shame, but uh, what kind of cat do you have? I have a main coon. Oh. Wow. Um, and an actual main coon, as every vet we've seen
1: during our cancer adventure has uh, felt the need to tell me because. There's a tendency for folks to say, oh, I have a long-haired cat. It must be a Maine Coon. And and no, it's just a long-haired cat. And there's nothing wrong with that. A long-haired cat is a magical thing. Um, but an actual Maine Coon has a, a very distinct look and size and, and attribute set. Um, and Alice is, is actually a Maine Coon, um, which means that when she was at her pre-cancer weight, at her fighting weight, she was 29 pounds. Wow. Yeah, it's quite a lot of cat. Um, <laughs> she's, she's a good bit below that right now, but we're hopeful that we'll be able to get her back up to normal. Um, and when she wants something, she pretty much gets it because it's really hard to stop a 29-pound cat from doing whatever they like.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I must admit, my cat is shut out every time I podcast because she loves coming and sitting not on my lap, but on the computer laptop or on the yeah. the nest of cables or something like that.
1: Yeah. That makes sense. I I sadly can't shut Alice out today, um, even though I knew that there was a good chance she would do exactly what she did, uh, which is come over and start demanding my attention. And if I had not picked her up when I did, she would have started yelling. So I figured that it was a little less disruptive to just go, hi, baby, I'll pick you up now. Um, But again, we just started chemo today. So today, Alice gets whatever
0: Alice wants. Well, absolutely, as it should be. Well, if Alice is all nice and settled, um, let's get yes. back to Dusk or Dark or Dawn or Day. I know the setting in this novel was completely different. So in Every Heart and in Sticks and Bones, the setting is somewhere unfamiliar and magical. And in your Versus Tales, of course, the setting set in a completely fictional world. But Dusk or Dark, the setting is somewhere well known. So what was it about this particular tale that made you want to set it in a modern and familiar location?
1: I really really wanted to tell a story that kind of reminded people, um, to some degree at least, that, you know, Kentucky still exists. Um, The Appalachian Mountains still exist. Small towns still exist. But New York exists too. Uh, Big cities and small towns are not antithetical to one another. There's a big urban-rural divide uh, in the U.S. right now, which sometimes seems a little silly as someone who has lived her entire life in suburbs uh, and in semi-rural suburbs to boot Hi, baby. Yes, good girl Um, Just because these are your neighbors. These are the people down the street So I wanted something that kind of connected the two of them Also, I do write a lot of urban fantasy uh, Which is, is fantasy set in those more familiar locales and one of the nicer things about it is it lets you be a little bit lazy You still have to work hard, but you can let, oh, this is set in New York, do some of that heavy lifting for you. Uh, Everyone knows what New York is. You may have to establish where your New York differs from the fictional New York that's already in their heads, but you can establish that. It's it's not the hardest thing ever. And once it's done, you'll be able to spend your time and your attention working on the story or, or working on the elements that actually interest you now.
0: Fantastic. Now, I, I understand that um, this story came from a brainstorming session with your editor and agent and was jotted down as a coming of age ghost story. So how, yep. did you, how did you get from that very vague description to the beautiful and complex story we have in Dusk or Dark? Um,
1: well, I, we, we like to joke again that I'm kind of a vending machine. If you tell me that you want something, I'll figure out how to make it work for you. Uh, so this was the vending machine moment was just this is what Lee said he wanted. Um, And so I sat there for about five minutes and then started explaining it to him. Um, I used to volunteer at a suicide hotline. Uh, I've been actively suicidal since I was nine years old um, because it is comorbid with OCD, uh, which is a thing I have and live with. And we don't really, again, in, in things we don't talk about that much that I think we should, we don't talk about suicidal ideation unless we're talking about oh so and so was just giving a cry for attention you know they were just they wanted us to make much of them well if someone's crying for attention that loudly maybe they need attention you know maybe it's time to give it to them Um, suicidal ideation is not a choice that you make it's not a weakness, it's not a personal failing, it's your brain chemistry is not playing nicely with the other children, and it's given you these ideas that you can't shake off. Um, So I really wanted to do something that dealt with suicide prevention and dealt with the aftermath of suicide that was not as immediate as a lot of those stories tend to be. Uh, Because the other thing about suicide that is really well everything about suicide is problematic that's not a great word but one of the big dangers is that it's it hurts you generationally you know people who have lost parents are more likely to be thinking of it are are more likely to be vulnerable Um, people who come from families, suicide does run in families And we don't know how much of that is the part where mental health often runs in families and how much of it is, well, it's already happened once, I I guess it's going to happen again. We can't have these conversations. We don't have the vocabulary collectively for these conversations. So I tried to write in my weird sideways urban fantasy way, uh, one of those conversations.
0: So if the suicide hotline was your jumping off point that initially said, kind of said, right, I've got experience, I want to deal with this particular issue. Um, One of the things that I loved about this book was the concept of passing time. So um, the ghosts kind of exchange time with the living to get up to their own dying day if they die before they should have done. So did this come in your initial brainstorm vending machine or did this kind of grow later on? Uh,
1: That mostly came in the initial vending machine because I needed to have some excuse for why if ghosts are this present... And this capable of moving among and working with the living, why do we not, why doesn't everyone know that ghosts are real? You know, why wouldn't you, upon dying, march straight up to your family and go, hey, it looks like I wasn't supposed to get hit by that truck. I've got another 10 years. You want me to hang out and help with the housework? Uh, It only makes sense if there is something ghosts can do that would make them a target and would thus make Ghosts less likely to to have those conversations. Uh, I wanted the isolation to be partially voluntary, and I also needed something that was symbolic of, you know, how do we how do we move on? How do we recover? How do we grieve? Uh, really, the the taking and the giving of time is partially symbolic of the grieving process and how everyone does it at their own rate. You know I cannot tell you that you are done grieving any more than you can tell me that I'm done Um, everyone's gonna move through it at the rate that they move through it and sometimes you're going to backslide and sometimes you're going to say you know what no I I need to be sad a little bit longer this is actually important to me
0: I mean that's some fascinating and very deep vending machine logic there uh, I think there are plenty of authors that would be jealous that you could just come up with that just sitting there and, and having a cup of coffee
1: everyone's brain works differently I'm, I'm frequently
0: terribly jealous of
1: other authors uh, because they've done something that seems impossibly clever or well put together to me
0: I know it's putting I, you on the spot but can you think of um, an author that you're particularly jealous of or something in particular that you've done or read and gone oh I wish I'd thought of that Oh, gosh. Um, Winter Tide by Ruthanna Emrys.
1: It's basically Wicked, you know, the inversion of the story, but for the Cthulhu mythos. Ooh. It's told from the point of view of one of the last surviving Deep Ones. Um, it manages to, without contradicting the original mythos, turn basically everything on its ear. And you wind up wondering, you know, is this, what are parts of this, what the original mythos would have looked like if it had been in the hands of someone who didn't hate people quite as much um I've, I've said a couple of times that really the proof of life after death is going to come from wintertide because when it starts winning awards which i'm absolutely certain it will because it's an it's a genius book i had to put it down several times to be angry about the fact that i hadn't written it uh, when it starts winning awards, H.P. Lovecraft is going to rise out of his grave to yell at people and then we're going to know that
0: life after death is real. Fantastic. I love that idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> but talking about books that we wish we'd written, um, Down Among the Sticks and Bones has to be one book that I'm just going to love and reread forever, I think. Yay! <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, and I have a weird relationship with it because um, I, like, I really, really liked Every Heart of Doorway. But... And, and I can't love Down Among the Sticks and Bones without reading Every Heart, but I have to say, Down Among the Sticks and Bones was, was definitely one that really captured me. Now, this charts the backstory of two of the characters from Every Heart, and they were my favourite characters, but why did you choose to give them their own story?
1: Um, well, in part because they were, they were very fleshed out in Every Heart, and I wanted to get people on board with, okay, look, we're going to be alternating the past and the present with characters they already really cared about. Nancy I don't know if we're ever going to get her flashback book because I really feel like at least for the moment her story is very finished off and the world that she went to is is a world about meditation and being at peace with yourself and and taking a deep breath Um, and that is wonderful for Nancy that is perfect for the character of Nancy but it's not necessarily a good story so I was looking for characters that we had already met who already had a good story that people would want to follow me into um, and that led me to Jack and Jill um, and Jack is very important to me uh, because she is the first protagonist I have written who has OCD so she's kind of my giving representation to myself uh, most of the time when you see OCD characters that's that's all they're allowed to be and Jack is so much more than that
0: I really struggled in the first little bit of it because the Jack and Jill, when you start out with down among the sticks and bones are the reverse of what they are in every Heart or doorway. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had to write myself a note and stick it to the front of the book, reminding me which way round they were so that I could follow their journey. <laughs> Cause they, it was almost like they were the complete opposite. And then um, their parents' expectations just forced them to swap roles and then they kind of, yeah, it was, it was really bizarre to try and these characters that I knew and loved to see them acting completely against their, the way I viewed them. And I appreciate that obviously they then go on to find their own natural balances. But it was, it was just um, amazing. Um, but we're talking about um, uh, Jack and once again we have an underrepresented um, main character. And her sexuality is not really something that comes out in every heart. So again, was this something that you knew in the first book or did it grow out of the character when you were writing the second book? It grew out of the character
1: writing the first book. Um, I have said, and, and actually her sexuality has not fully come out because we do see her with Alexis in Down Among the Sticks and Bones. Uh, and I'm not currently planning any other love interests for her, she's, she's very much about uh, Alexis, despite you know complications that I will not go into. Um, but she is actually uh, completely pansexual. She does not care that much about the gender of her partners, she cares about her partners um she's also because of her OCD fairly sex repulsed so it takes her a lot of work to be intimate with someone and that makes her very very picky um and that was was interesting to try to get across without getting out the
0: sledgehammer just like this is where we're at jack needs a shower and <laughs> i mean um, i remember talking to people about it other people who read it and it was just it was just lovely the way that um you had Jack needed to have another another half, um, a partner of some description, for events to unfold as they would, because the other partner was the catalyst and it could easily have been a man or it could have easily been a woman and it just it was just so lovely to kind of see it fitting in and slotting in and just going, Yeah, that that's just the way it is. It was for me, it was really refreshing, like you say, without having the whole sledgehammer side of it. Uh, now, most fairy tales um, have a moral tale with them in them, but they tend to be directed at children, like don't wander off the path, don't talk to strangers. Um, however, mm-hmm. in, in this novel, the moral tale seems to be directed more at the adults. So don't try and force your children to be certain kinds of people and don't yes. have children if they're just there for decoration. So was this a deliberate inversion that you set out to do or, d- again, was it growing from the writing?
1: Uh, that was a very deliberate inversion.
0: Um, I, I wanted to make that point because
1: you were talking about how it's nice to see Jack's sexuality treated as just normal and it not that big a deal. But as someone who grew up in the California queer community and again, you know, worked for suicide hotlines, we get so many teenagers, even still whose parents have decided, Oh, they're going to be this person. They're going to be this way. And even though, your kids are, are people like from day one. Yes, there are decisions that you have to make for them when they're an infant or a toddler. But by the time they're a teenager, they're, they're pretty well a people, whether you like it or not. Um, We see so many kids whose parents go, Oh, I'll love you no matter what, but not if you're like that. And so I sort of, Wanted again in my weird little urban fantasy way to to go. Hey, you know There are consequences You can't make a person be who you want them to be just because you're not comfortable with the idea of them being the way that they really are
0: Exactly and I think that comes across very clearly in the book without Feeling like it's overpowering the book because that's only at the beginning and although it Mm -hmm. has knock-on effects throughout all of it I think that it, it works really nicely um, yeah. To set it all up. Um, I mean, every good writer knows that you have to obviously write the backstory of your characters f- before you start launching into. But well, those who are, are sort of architects rather than gardeners, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, how much of Jack and Jill's backstory did you have in your head when you wrote Every Heart? None. <laughs> so it's all come about. I none at all. I I knew that they were
1: that they were twins. That they had been to this deeply creepy, deeply wonderful place that they both fit into it in their own way and that they very much wanted to go back. Um, And then when it came time to to start unpicking them, uh, I pulled everything I had said in Every Heart of Doorway about their childhood, every bit that referenced what they had been like before the Moors and what they had done there, and then started trying to to sort of figure out how that all came together uh, and how it fit with the things I wanted to say. I'm, I'm neither an architect nor a gardener. We like to joke that I'm a crocodile hunter. Ooh. I just wander around looking for the
0: biggest possible thing and then shout, I'm going to wrestle it and jump on top and see what happens. <laughs> That's a fantastic idea. I have to remember that one. That's a good idea. Um, I mean, we talked about inverting tropes just a minute ago. And I'd say a good example of this is the mad scientist in your book because mad scientists are usually... Very sort of throwaway characters and um, but you made a real effort to give this one personality and um, a background and I almost want to read his backstory to see you know what's going on with him um, but what made you decide to take him in a more compassionate direction and keep the the vampire as the kind of traditional all-powerful manipulative character that he is well part of it was that he's the one who got Jack
1: and if you take these two if you take two people who are broken enough, that the Moors would open for them because the Moors are not one of the worlds that, that opens for people who are not broken. Something has to have happened to help Jack heal, even as something was happening to make Jill worse. And the obvious thing was, you know, since Jack, has commented and Jill has commented on the, that Jill belonged to this vampire, um, that Jack would have wound up with the mad scientist, and we knew that again from every heart of doorway uh, because you know Jack had talked about sleeping on the floor and reanimating the dead and everything is scientific, so he had to be on some level a sympathetic figure. Also, one of those critiques that that I can't I can't argue with because you should never argue with critique of your work. Period um but i also kind of go well i see where you're coming from but i can't agree with you is i've had a couple folks go i didn't enjoy down among the sticks and bones because it felt like you were just you had an axe to grind with parents you were mad at parents i didn't want every adult that the twins dealt with to be a bad person because the point was not that adults are bad. The point was not that parents are bad. The The point isn't even honestly that the Wolcott's are bad, just that they shouldn't have had children. You know, they, they chose to have children for a very bad reason, and that had consequences, because actions have consequences. Uh, so Dr. Bleak had to be someone that could be a good role model, that could be a positive adult character. If every adult had been a bad guy, I think that would have taken some of the effectiveness out of the critique that the adults we have represented
0: fantastic so we sort of grew from jack's need rather than um as a a sort of an independent character that leaped leaped into your head all right okay i mean at the beginning excuse me at the beginning of the novel both Jack and Jill are given a choice over who they want to work with either the vampire or the mad scientist which makes me wonder given that obviously you, you said that Jack was a little like you whether you would have chosen the mad scientist or whether you oh didn't. absolutely <laughs> are what? you kidding a
1: world where lightning can raise the dead consistently and here's someone who's willing to teach me
0: how to make that work and that definitely appeals over eternal life and, and nice dresses then yeah <laughs> I really like mud and frogs the, that's definitely a jack answer then <laughs> fantastic well I mean I really like I say I really enjoyed those, those books um but I wanted to speak a little bit about the versus series um which is obviously sort of superheroes but but not and I hadn't realized that the whole series was available to read for free online and there's 11 of them on your website um now I know many authors and publishers decide to give away the first book in series so that they'll tempt the reader in but what what made you want to give away so many books for free
1: well, the Verses series, so that's Velveteen Verses. Those aren't books. Those are short stories. Hmm. Um, so the first 11 is probably about half of book one. Um, the rest of it is all still available to read online for free, but I need to migrate it from the LiveJournal servers where it's currently hosted uh, to something a little more secure and a little less fascist. I gave them away for free because they were written for free. Um, I love that there's a print edition now, I love that you can, can buy Velveteen Verses, uh, not only because it helps to feed my cats, uh, but because I am a strong advocate of helping to close the digital divide, and print editions are very important when it comes to doing that. You, you can't close the digital divide without a certain number of print editions. Um, and I just keep giving them away and and keep them up online because that is where they come from and that's where they belong. And I don't want to suddenly go to the folks that have been reading Velveteen since literally 2009. Uh, hey, sorry, I've decided that more copies of the print edition would sell if these weren't up. So I'm taking them away. (laughs) Ha ha, have fun.
0: (laughs) That does sound very, very considerate. And I mean, it's, it's a great way to draw people in anyway. Um, but a bit like every heart doorway and dealing with a, an aspect of port fantasy we don't see Most superhero novels deal with a superhero in the making or the stories about them at the peak of their powers So what made you want to write about a superhero who'd pretty much given up on that life?
1: I really really love the Disney Channel When I am, am sad or having a bad day I will watch really awful Disney Channel sitcoms that are aimed at teenagers Uh, Because they are not necessarily asking for deep emotional complexity on my part. They just want to entertain me for a little bit. And I really appreciate that. I do not appreciate the way that some of their teenage stars wind up getting trapped. So they they will do the thing of, oh, we made you. And now you're stuck in these contracts you can't get out of that you signed when you were 15. Uh, Now you have to behave according to a certain set of Disney standards. And if you don't like that, well, tough. Again, you signed those contracts at 15. I love Disney. I don't think that they're always necessarily the best to their people. And so I kind of went, well, what would superheroes look like in a world where Disney exists? you know, in a world where I could potentially get a superhero under contract exclusively to me at the age of 15, what would that do to them? How badly would it damage them? Would there be any way out of it? Uh, and that is, that is honestly where Velveteen came from, was just, I've watched a lot of Disney Channel. I wonder how badly Disney could mess up superheroes.
0: <laughs> um, and I think the answer is always going to be pretty badly when it comes to Disney, <laughs> Um, You mentioned on your website that you love old horror comics. Um, Which ones in particular were your favourites or which strongly influenced you growing up?
1: Uh, My absolute favourites are actually Creepy and Eerie by Warren Publishing. That's the folks that did Vampirella. Um, My mother, we grew up incredibly poor in the state of California. And my mother went to a yard sale and came home with this gigantic box of old Warren periodicals. So all of a sudden I had this huge pile of comics to read, uh, all of which are about 15 to 20 years too old for me. Like it's extremely rare uh, to meet someone my age who's actually encountered Warren, Um, but they were fantastic. You know, they were just on the edge of the comics code. They were telling stories that we view as kind of cliché today because they've been told to death, but I had never seen before. And they they just
0: changed how I saw a lot of things. You talked earlier about Easter eggs and putting them into your um, novels. Are there any Easter eggs from your comics in there? No,
1: not really. Um, Warren is just obscure enough that it doesn't Easter egg well in modern work. That doesn't mean it won't happen. It just hasn't so much. Um, No, I tend more toward things. There's an iCarly reference in one of my Mira Grant books. Uh, There's also a Care Bears reference in one of my Mira Grant books. Um, And, you know, people catch them or they don't. But I think a good Easter egg should not require
0: catching to be funny. Excellent. And you mentioned Mira Grant there, which was what I wanted to speak about next, because you used that pseudonym to write science fiction stories, you said on your mm-hmm. website, because you wanted some distance between that and your fantasy. So yes. do you find it harder to sell her stuff because Mira doesn't come with the fame and glory that the name Shauna McGuire now conjures up?
1: You know, on the whole, Mira
0: sells better book by book than Shannon does. So I think she's doing just fine. <laughs> Did you ever perhaps think about giving up being Sean? Well, not literally giving up being Seanan and then, moving exclusively to Mira then? Or are you always going to? No, no. Um, Shannon has
1: two. I, I always wind up talking about myself in the third person when these questions come up. Because how else do you do it? Uh, but Shannon has two ongoing urban fantasy series. So, even if I couldn't sell anything new, I would be being Shannon professionally uh, for quite some time. Um, Also, much as I enjoy being Mira and enjoy, again, feeding my cats, um, I really also enjoy being, you know, myself, the person that actually exists and walks in the world. So,
0: I mean, you have obviously written an awful lot and anyone, you know, wanting to do that can check out your website. Uh, And you've written an astounding amount of short stories. So given the richness, and the depth, and the complexities of your novels, how do you go about compressing all that into a short story?
1: A short story is like a form of structured poetry. You start out with your word count, and you work to what you get. Um, I think that they're extremely important for novelists, because it keeps us from getting overrunny. You know, especially as I've started to build a reputation, There's more inclination to let me have the extra words. Oh, normally an urban fantasy is 100,000 to 115,000. But if Shannon's coming in at 125, she she needs it for some reason. Like, well, maybe (laughs) the reason is I was lazy that day. So let's write some short fiction and make sure that we're continuing to pull ourselves back. Um, I love my short fiction. I love short fiction, period. It's super important to me. Uh, but the, but that's a lot of it. I just approach it like I was writing a poem.
0: Well that's interesting, so I remember when I was just starting out in writing I read somewhere, and I think it's Stephen King, but don't quote me on this, um, but one writer said, you're either a short story writer or a novel writer. You can't be good at both, but it, obviously you seem to be the exception to the rule. Do you think there's, there's anything to that, or is it...?
1: Well I think Stephen King is also good at both, so it probably wasn't him. Probably not. Um, there are a lot of people who are good at both. The, most of the most of the novelists I know do at least some short work, and then you start getting into the question of what is short work and what is not. I mean, Every Heart of Doorway is a novella, which is a short fiction form uh, rather than being novel length. Uh, it's printed as a standalone book, so most people treat it as a book, but I wrote it as if it were a short story to make sure that I didn't run over. Honestly, I think that we just put limitations on ourselves because every form takes a certain measure of work and there's this urge to go, oh, well, if I can't do X, it's because I'm not that kind of writer. I'm this other kind of writer. Well, if you want to be that kind of writer, just
0: write a whole bunch of bad stuff and eventually it'll click and you'll figure out how to write good stuff. So when you're writing a short story, do you find that the scenario pops into your head first or is it a character that you then suddenly go, oh, I could do something with this or is it equal parts of both?
1: If it is something standalone, it is always the scenario that comes first because the scenario is what I have to work from. If it's something set in one of my pre-existing universes, then I usually go in with the character and go, okay, well, what horrible things can I do to this person today?
0: Um, and on that note, I think we, uh, we've we come to the end of our, our interview. Well, thank you very much, Seanan, for joining us today. Not only have we delved a little deeper into the mind that made us fall in love with wayward children, we've also learned how to be a creative vending machine. We've learned about the existence of filk, the folk music of science fiction and fantasy, and how it's important not to mistake a long-haired cat for a Maine Coon. Thank you, to Seanan, <laughs> for joining, for talking to us today. Please join us again for the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.